welcome to the Affairs Code podcast. Uh, our email is theaffairscode at gmail.com. Our blog, theaffairscode.blogspot.com, where you can see all the show notes for this episode coming to you in this most tumultuous, uh, what feels like a decade, but is in fact one year of 2020. Uh, and, you know, we have done a, a few episodes this year, more than normal. Um, gave you a couple, uh, about a month or so ago. Oh, actually, well, it was two months ago at this point. Um, some overview kind of grab bag uh, type of uh, shows around movies and music, um, some extra listening content. But today uh, we're doing our traditional uh, half year uh, music episode. We're just going to try to deliver uh, one episode to you, make it a little bit briefer and punchier uh, this time around. And But we're going to be going over our t- favorite tracks uh, and albums of this year and maybe some other thoughts on music in 2020 so far. And who do I have on the other end of the uh, tin can and string with me to uh, discuss this? We've got the uh, Ferris Current sometime music contributor, Isaac Botham, back from uh, the Heatwave Bunker in Ottawa, Canada, to uh, weigh in on some music. Yes, yes, the uh, the unseasonable heatwave stroke uh, coronavirus uh, uptake uh, capital of, uh, of uh, our, our nation. Yeah. Um, was, I, am, I am located in... In sunny, uh, relatively COVID-free Halifax, and I am uh, enjoying that. Um, it's nice you, to but... know our cities. I, I will we'll move on, but I'm just saying it's not, it's nice to know that uh, my city's uh, cor- coronavirus turn has made national news already. It's very encouraging. Mm, yes, well, yes, yes. We're, we're all very encouraged by that. <laughs> anyway, um, so I just wanted to start off with, you know, given how... Uh, you know, I, well, you know, some have said that, you know, in the future, uh, historians will specialize in particular months of 2020. Um, but, you know, given all this <clears throat> happened, I guess I just want to start with some, some broad overview thoughts about music in 2020. And I mean, it's been particularly interesting because of, you know, the effects of the pandemic, um, really sort of meaning that, uh, certain things like, and I think when we, when I try, uh, later on to do a movie episode with Edward, this will become much more apparent for that sector of media, uh, but things did change a lot this year. There weren't, you know, festivals, there weren't, uh, live concerts, um, for the most part. Uh, so there definitely, you know, things did change, and at least initially, a lot of album releases did get delayed, uh, but then I think at some point, um, Otis sort of decided, okay, well, you know, given digital releasing is the biggest platform these days, given that, you know, there's still, you can still record things, even under, under a, you know, quarantine lockdown type of scenario, um, we did resume a much more, like, normal, at least, release schedule uh, of music and of albums, um, and therefore, um, you know, even though we do have, like, some albums that sort of directly address um, both, you know, the coronavirus, but also obviously, um, you know, the ongoing Black Lives Matter protests and other sort of sociological um, events uh, of this year. Um, it was interesting because, like, I feel like music was maybe less impacted in a direct end consumer sense than other sorts of things. Um, I think we do have um, something that I'll talk about briefly that did happen this year is sort of the phenomenon, which didn't become as big of a thing as I thought it was going to, at least initially, but of the lockdown album, which some artists, um, you know, endeavored to craft like an entire record in the course of a quarantine or in the course of this, you know, imposed isolation that tried to uh, speak to that feeling, um, you know, perhaps some more successfully than others. Uh, but overall, I think this was an interesting year so far. 
Um, it's definitely one of the stronger years, at least in terms of like albums I was interested in listening to in a while. Um, definitely a lot of artists put that I you know have on my radar put out music this year. Now, whether or not that necessarily uh, will appear on my list so far is a, a bit of a different um, thing. But definitely, I listen to a lot more records this year than I feel like I have at this point in years past. Um, so I don't know if you have any similar thoughts or, or different broad thoughts before we get into the tracks. Yeah, I mean, I find I have a lot more time to listen to music. Uh, and that I'm also, I mean, it's more insular. So I think I've, I have found myself listening to more long form and abstract or, you know, sort of more out there pieces than I normally would just because I'm, I'm experiencing music less from a kind of like commuting or purposeful perspective. So Mm. it's more serving a purpose to kind of jolt me out of. There's just the sensation of sameness that you can get, especially when, you know, you're kind of in a, a very uh, solitary situation, is just in terms of maybe the work uh, that you're doing. So mm. that being said, I found that it's been a remarkably balanced year for music overall. There's been some records that disappointed me, and, you know, I think there's been some no-shows, but given the circumstances... I certainly can't complain about uh, the resilience that a lot of artists have shown. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one thing that you point out is interesting is that, you know, the context in which we're listening to music, or at least a lot of people are listening to music, really has changed. And I think it maybe has opened people's ears to records that are a bit more deliberate and require more careful sort of attention to really get or to really appreciate um, in certain ways, um, you know, when you're not using music as a way to, like, you know, fill in dead space in a commute or, or something like that or walking around or something like that, when you're actually doing something where you know the point is I'm going to listen to this record, which, you know, come to think of it is really much more how music used to be listened to um, in terms of, like, going to a shop, buying an LP, putting it on the turntable, and, like, that's your, that is the thing in and of itself that you are doing. Um, so I think that there's that aspect. And then there's also an aspect of, like, there are some new artists that I heard this year, and I'll, I'll just mention them briefly uh, because they won't come up otherwise, but the uh, a really good example of this was this album that came out by this group, this new group, Special Interest, um, who, like, I had mixed feelings on the their debut album, The Passion Of, but I found, like, okay, I would really like this band live, but unfortunately there is no way for the foreseeable future, like, anyone is going to be able to see them live. So it kind of added that context of things too where you know albums very much and and tracks as well but albums in particular have to very much stand on their own now as opposed to being like almost a teaser of a live performance that some um, groups can sometimes get into in terms of the way they do albums so i think like both of those factors really changed at least the way that i was engaging with certain records this year um okay so let's uh, go on then, and we'll start with our f- top five tracks. And just as a reminder, this top five tracks that came out in the first half of uh, 2020, um, and they are tracks which do not appear on any of the albums that are in our top five albums, because otherwise there would be a huge amount of overlap. Um, so I will let uh, Isaac uh, start with his number five track. Yeah, so my number five track is uh, was the initial single from... Uh dirty projectors run in 2020 
which uh, we'll have to see how it pans out, but initially has served to be one of the most promising and well-balanced uh, EP runs I think we've seen from a kind of established band in recent years, so I'm very pleasantly surprised with that. And both as a general commendation of uh, the like the the impetus or the ambition to you know do the kind of multi EP run, but also then having the just sort of timeless songwriting and arranging that I think Dirty Projectors when they don't when Dave Longstreth isn't sort of getting in his own way. Not that I think that that's never musically productive or interesting, but that uh, when the band is not interested in that, they can still write a uh, really sort of satisfying songs with just kind of an extended focus on melodic shifts, on progression, on like subtle changes and uh, very tasteful kind of folk and chamber pop arrangements. So I'm very excited for the rest of the material that Dirty Projectors has promised. But even if they don't deliver, they've already delivered two really strong EPs. And I think that Overlord is, you know, for no other reason than uh, the kind of contrast behind its subject and its tone and uh, just the kind of... Uh, elegance of the song structure in general it maybe stands as the track i'd pick out although honestly i think all eight of the tracks they've released so far have been commendable and like i said i'm very excited to see what they drop next um yeah i mean i i agree with you that uh, both those eps were pretty interesting pieces of work you know it's funny um with these um with these lists, you know, we don't really have a space for those sorts of EPs or smaller, you know, things that are longer than a track, but smaller than an album um, in the way we think about things. I mean, occasionally we'll talk about them, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think that that is a, a method that a lot of artists are increasingly turning to in, turning, in terms of getting their output out there, these smaller, more bite-sized sort of packages, and I do think that it's helped um, David Longstreet, the Dirty Projectors, to really maybe focus some of their ideas a bit more because I found maybe their last couple of albums have been a little bit, um, maybe a little bit unfocused or a little bit um, overlong. And I do think that like the fact that they've, they've started to trim it down to these shorter song cycles um, actually has sort of helped eliminate what they're doing. And I think, you know, their sound, which is so intricate and layered, um, really actually maybe hits a bit differently in this time just because of, you know, how studio-bound it, it often is, um, which some, you know, times could maybe be a drawback. But uh, I do think that the, those EPs were pretty strong pieces of work. So uh, my uh, number five track is a track from an artist who, um, this is kind of his, you know, I guess you'd say comeback. He's been away for a little while. Um, he has a kind of a new band, or at least a new project. Um, and he's, you know, singing about a scenario that is not going to, well, hopefully not going to happen for a while. Um, and it's House Music All Night Long by uh, Jarvis Cocker, or under the new band name Jarv Is. Um, so Jarvis Cocker, of course, longtime frontman of Pulp. He also released a couple of solo albums for the past couple of years. Um, you know, the album he put out uh, is kind of interesting. Um, it's definitely leaning very hard on that sort of Leonard Cody. 
um, you know, deep voice, you know, gladly ballad you singing about, you know, lost love and intimacy and all that type of thing. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's pretty good. I find some of the tracks to be a bit overly long and they don't really evolve. Um, I think what helps about house music all night long is this kind of druggy scenario that he puts together of, you know, uh, you know, waking up in this kind of stupor um, and realizing that you've been partying all night and people are still partying around you and you don't really know what's going on, uh, but you sort of have to go with it. Um, and, you know, this often, you know, points back to, like, the, this is hardcore era of pulp music, that feeling of weary decadence and that type of thing. But I think, like, this feels much older and much, um, in a certain way, there's an underlying tone of sadness to it that I don't think was often there with the earlier pulp records. Um, and I also think that the, the sort of stories telling with the lyrics really works with the music in this case, which is this kind of, you know, it's not quite, you know, house music, but it does have a bit of a thumping beat, uh, but it's nevertheless very sort of twisty and psychedelic. Um, so I think if, uh, you know, you're somebody who's followed Jarvis Cocker for a while, you've been interested to see what he's doing. There's definitely a lot more layered than his solo. Uh, his solo album was just released under his own name, Will, which were pretty direct and punchy. Um, this is, as I say, much more sort of languid and almost lounge music-esque at points. Um, but yeah, uh, House Music All Night Long by Jarv is... Uh, or if you if you prefer uh, less pretension, uh, Jarvis Cocker, um, the best track off of a off of an album that had some interesting qualities, but I felt was a bit um, a bit samey overall. Cool. Well, I'll confess, I I think I listened to this thing when it came out, but I have not gone back. The record was on my list. I think it came out uh, just the previous weekend going into us recording this, so. I am planning to get around to it, uh, but it has not crossed my desk as of yet. My number four track uh, is sort of uh, a pick that I feel conflicted about because uh, when I first listened to the album, it came on very strong, uh, but it sort of faded away. Uh, the track is Just uh, by Rub and Jewels featuring Pharrell Williams and Zach De La Roca. The album, of course, Rub and Jewels 4. And uh, I thought at the time it was sort of uh, much more uh, tighter, more balanced, punchier album than their third one. And I appreciated it for that. But, uh, and maybe this is just sort of an aesthetic preference. It didn't stick with me. And I found myself going back to doing a series of other releases around the same time. Medhane, Armed Hammer, Mike, much more abstract uh, releases, and I don't know. I, I think it's maybe wrong for me to dismiss Run the Jewels music as a little slow to evolve, a little too didactic for my particular <laughs> desires and mood in this moment, but I think it is what it is. However, I will say that I think that Just is one of the better uh, songs, certainly one of the best collaboration collaborations uh, the project has put out, just in the way that they sort of layer different strands of that very kind of like cynical, punchline-based, uh, hard-edged humor, but uh, it's sort of tied to a... Uh, 
a more kind of uh, layered and um, cynical message about capitalism, about class, about, uh, you know, the kind of lies that people tell themselves to say they're still a revolutionary, they're still woke, or they're still progressive. And uh, it kind of, it, it uses, I think, a little bit the kind of Kanye West, you know, sort of palette method of bringing together a number of disparate artists, but balancing what they have to add in a way that all of them sort of get distinct moments, like places to shine, and the entire thing kind of feels like a roller coaster. And, um, you know, I obviously hope for good things in his future because I, I uh, have hope for everyone. I don't necessarily <laughs> know if we're going to get that kind of Kanye moment in rap. So I think that just uh, that might be my explanation for why it stayed with me more than most material in R2J4. But overall, it's not a bad album. I generally recommend it, but uh, just was the track that stood out. Um, so I will have more to say about OTJ4 later, um, but I do agree with you about Just in particular. You know, it does have that collage type of feel that somebody like a Kanye would do, um, albeit in miniature. You know, the very fact that you're doing a song, um, which, you know, as you say, is a very political uh, number. Um, and, you know, the, the hook is literally about having slave masters on your money and, and that type of thing. But the fact that, like, that hook is sung by Pharrell and then Zach De La Roca um, doing various uh, different interpretations of how that is, um, you know, does... I, I think that there that there's a genius of the production there, too, um, that I think, you know, sometimes LP as a producer doesn't necessarily get enough credit for and I think on this album he really did switch things up in, in certain ways um, that I appreciated but we'll, we'll talk more about that later so my number four um, is a song by, actually funnily enough is a song by the well, I think the only band I actually saw live this year um, and that's because it was at a, a, a moment which will live forever and infamy uh, in internet video um, where you know Julian Casablancas um, almost got into a fight with uh, the with a New Hampshire police department uh, officer. Um, but regardless, um, the song is "Bad Decisions" by The Strokes. Um, so New Strokes album, the new Abnormal. Um, it's you know I would say if you want to look at this as like a late career album by a previously like famous uh, rock band, um, it is pretty solid uh, stuff. Um, it's much more engaging, in my opinion, than their, a couple of their previous records. It has a bit more grit, a bit more grime, um, and a bit more of an interesting kind of new wavy sound, uh, which I think comes off uh, the best on Bad Decisions. Like, yes, um, it heavily quotes from uh, Dancing With Myself and Bizarre Love Triangle. Um, you know, if that bothers you, uh, then, you know, you're probably not going to like this. Um, I guess for me, I felt it was more like a paying tribute or almost like a sampling type of thing. And I do think the band brings their own energy to it and their own approach to um, that sort of material. And more or less, I do think it kind of brings the band back to a bit of a ground level. And that's almost maybe why I like the kind of obvious quotes as it feels more like um, back to their headier uh, garage rock sort of days in a, in a way. Um, and I think that... Uh, you know, the album overall, um, I felt had, you know, it was a, it was a solid B album basically. Um, and you know, I listened to it a few times, uh, but I do think that the single bad decisions, um, 
was the one that stood out to me the most. And, and actually, you know, and this is just referring back to the concert I saw that, you know, it was, I think, the one of the only new tracks that they played, which really did get the crowd going um, in a way that the older material did. Um, so I do think that, you know, uh, that, that does show that there is um, this, this through line uh, with, with this track in particular, which does harken back to some of their older material. But um, so overall, you know, pretty good effort by the Strokes this year. I, I commend them for their political decision-making. Um, and Bad Decisions uh, was, uh, you know, uh, a, a solid track by a band that uh, I think, you know, is, is definitely in the twilight period of their career. I don't think they're ever going to make it. Is this it again? Um, but they are plugging along. They are still out there. And I think, you know, on occasion, lightning does strike and they, they, they deliver something pretty, pretty solid. Well, that's very funny because my number three track is uh, not Bad Decisions, but also off The Strokes, um, the Strokes uh, album, which um, uh, I have as uh, At The Door which I was considering mm. also uh, the adults are talking, but I think I'm going with At The Door because it's a single um, and maybe more representative of uh, the angle that I think the album sort of represented. So while I did appreciate Bad Decisions, uh, if I were to kind of throw out uh, top the tracks, which I had as highlights, I would probably put uh, at the door and the opener, the adults are talking. And uh, actually, the the another sort of decut, why are Sundays so depressing? Uh, I think that all of them demonstrate different aspects of how the Strokes have kind of rounded out as a band. So while I agree with you that I, I don't think they're, they're going to get the lightning in the bottle of even their first two albums ever again, I think that they... Do, they show a lot of maturation and versatility in a kind of unified aesthetic on the album. And that's what's maybe, even if it isn't in and of itself, I mean, it didn't make my top five, it, I would probably put it, you know, somewhere in the five to ten range. And we'll see how it survives the next six months or so. But, um, or the six to ten range. But uh, I definitely appreciate how at the door was such a kind of anti-strokes reintroduction to the band as a unit after seven years away, but how it still incorporated, I think, what a lot of the promise of their the new abnormal was, which is kind of a new wavy, poppier merging of the both strokes and uh, the work that Julian Casablanca has been doing both on phrases and on uh, the voids in terms of you know like really kind of turning the dial up to 11 on the vocal histrionics and you know making himself sort of enunciating more clearly and having kind of more out there uh, song structures topics concerns and I think that uh, even if it wasn't you know I definitely would maybe not put it on at a party instead of either bad decisions or, you know, more aptly something like, you know, last night or someday. Uh, I do think that in as both just kind of a, uh, it as a sort of, and I, I, I don't like that this word is floating around, but it's this kind of locus uh, or of uh, like uh, 
his collaborations with Daft Punk and his solo material and the overall palette of the album, it really, uh, it really kind of struck me as, uh, even if the album didn't make the end of my list, one of the bigger kind of musical track moments for me, because it, it really, it served to announce this new era of the band in, uh, I thought, a very clear and interesting way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's also, uh, you know, a solid choice off the record. Um, and I do agree with you that, you know, it did function as a bit of a reintroduction to what the band was doing on, on this album. Um, yeah, like like I say, like, it's one of those records which I would say, too, you know, it's a solid B record. Um, <laughs> you know, it's not going to change the world. It's not going to recapture the lightning in a bottle. Um, but, you know, if you if you say, okay, I've already played, you know, is this it? And, and Room on Fire, you know, I'll stick up for Room on Fire. Um, you know, I've already played those 100,000 times. I need, need some new, you know, juice here. Um you know, the new Abnormal will, will not serve you wrong. <coughs> um, so my number three choice then is uh, actually, a, a you know, a good example of the phenomenon we talked about earlier, uh, the Lockdown album, uh, which was come out by uh, Charlie XCX's record, uh, How I'm Feeling Now, uh, which overall um, I thought was an interesting approach to this idea of, like, making an album in quarantine. Um, you know, obviously her music is quite electronic to begin with, and she was able to collaborate with producers uh, via, you know, digital methods. Um, and, and, you know, she's increasingly been working with, you know, the PC music crew who kind of, like, use the idea of artificiality as, like, part of the aesthetic of the music um, and bring that in an interesting way. Um, I did feel like the record was a little bit repetitive um, overall, even though it was fairly short. Um, and I feel like maybe it could have been better as an EP. Uh, but nevertheless, I do think that the interesting thing about the record and the, the particularly the track that I uh, selected, which is really the opener. I mean, there is a song on it before this, but it's kind of more just an, in, an atmospheric intro. Uh, the song is Forever uh, by Charlie XCX. And basically what I found interesting about this song and the, the other songs on the record, which I thought were, were really good, I could have also picked Claws, um, which is a, the song that comes right after it. Um, for similar reasons, is that, you know, Charlie XCX's music has increasingly, as I said, been, you know, moving to this PC music, sort of experimental, um, deliberately artificial sort of pop realm. And what I found interesting about this is the fact that she was able to, by combining, like, that aesthetic, you know, her vocals are occasionally, like, pitch-shifted and corrected in odd, like, blatantly artificial ways, and, like, they're layered in interesting ways with the electronics. So this is very clearly, like, you know, it's it's a... It's music, a track, as as deliberately showing like it's an artificially constructed product. But at the same time, the fact that she's thematically like talking about like missing people, um, being in this situation of social isolation, which you know so many people were and are still in, um, and you know bringing that to the table creates this interesting you know um, intersection between these very like direct human sort of emotions, like saying you know the song is literally about loving somebody even though you can't physically be with them, um, with this artificiality which sort of speaks to the fact that you have to connect with people through these digital methods which inherently like create these artificialities and distortions. Um, I think she managed to like get that perfect meld of like thematic subject matter with uh, aesthetic and with like sonic approach um, on this track. Uh, that really put it over the top for me. And I think it uh, brought together like the two sides of Charlie XCX, again, this more experimental musician and this sort of direct uh, pop artist 
um, together in a way that I don't really feel like she has on maybe the last couple records, which I did enjoy, but more, again, in that PC music, kind of like, isn't this strange, isn't this odd, like the way this is fitting together. Um, this really balanced the, the sweet and the sour, you might say, um, of Charlie XCX for me. Um, yeah, so overall, I thought the, the record was um, an interesting experiment, not fully successful, but it did have a couple of really stellar tracks, and Forever is one of them. Yeah, I agree. I think that Forever is, in my mind, I don't want to be declarative on this, but I think it's at least as good as the best tracks she had off her her last album, which I think both of them, for different reasons, haven't quite hit the heights of Pop 2 for me, which is, is still really the Charlie project that sits at the pinnacle. But Forever's an excellent track. It was sort of one of the few that uh, I have on uh, my list of favorite tracks that just didn't make my five. Uh, I think partially just on what might one might call a political basis, uh, trying to, mm. you know, think about the kind of projects I'm representing and the things I want to big up. Uh, but it's excellent track, very solid project. And uh, certainly glad that Charlie was able to kind of document uh, the times or events that they were proceeding much more immediately than any other artist. And I think that was a very bold and I don't think it's over the brave artistic decision. And uh, I'm certainly uh, in support of that. So my number two track is a rather a long one, but it's also a single. Uh, and that is uh, Mirage by Quelle Chris and Chris Keys, and it's featuring Earl Sweatshirt, Denmark Vesey, and uh, spoken word artist Big Sen. And uh, I don't know, I think that the this was another album like The Strokes and uh, like a few others that uh, I'm sure we'll talk about before we get to the list that are sort of hanging around the 6 to 10 area for me. But, uh, and there's a lot of standouts. The album, sorry, is Innocent Country 2. Uh, and I think that it kind of cements the run that Quali Chris has been on for the past few years. I think operating in a lane where I'd feel comfortable maybe calling him one of the, you know, one of the most underrated rappers in the kind of, uh, the more conceptual side so he's not you know he's not fully lo-fi and he's not and you know tied to a particular movement or anything but he's sort of occupying a lane of very conscious album sort of album oriented rap uh, if you want to use that descriptor and innocent country true to I think functions as a very effective kind of victory lap or capstone of the album year run he's been on since he released the original Innocent Country in 2015. Uh, it's such a sort of warm, rich album. Uh, and uh, I think that only it being a little long and uh, a little sort of samey or having some sections where the mid-tempo-ness uh, kind of drags a bit, but there are some definite emotional highlights, uh, graphic bleed-outs being one of them, certainly, 
Uh, however, for me, Mirage, in part because it's my requisite ranking of Earl Sweatshirt that all my lists much find a way to sneak in, but also because it, I think, very much captures uh, sort of a lament for the the sort of a mood of the album in, in general, which I think is kind of a lament for uh, an American life, even if it was not idealized, but, you know, even if it was still uh, as an oppressed person, as, you know, uh, a person who's been declared to be, uh, you know, a subject of an oppressive state, that there is still, there was, you know, a culture and a life that because of tensions, because of worsening uh, economic and political horizon, there it sort of functions as lament for, um, you know, a, a, a lament for a past that, while decidedly imperfect, uh, you know, certainly had a lot of value and certainly a lot of vigor and life energy being poured into it. And I think that Mirage is a, you know, by ver uh, again sort of operates on that like quality that the best posse tracks or uh it's not so much a cipher but certainly you know uh, a group cut in hip-hop does where it balances all the members delivering uh sort of different functions or messages and you know mixing things up both in terms of delivery and content i think it does that uh, well, especially with the spoken word outro, which just by uh, the virtue of its content and by virtue of actually going to find a spoken word artist who is more focused on, you know, acapella performance, I think that it, you know, hits better than a lot of kind of outros or interludes that have similarly popped up on album-oriented rap projects. So Mirage is definitely a highlight for me, and I think it really encapsulates the the kind of melancholy and uh, intelligence that's at the core of innocent country, which uh, I, you know, would certainly be uh, solidly in the six to 10 range of my list. But uh... yeah, so um, I have to be honest that I haven't actually listened to the full album that this cut comes from, although I have listened to the cut itself. And it is um, a pretty strong posse track. And if you are, um, in the in the mood for that, and I do think, as you said, Quale Chris, you know, particularly relative to other people, like say J. Cole or um, you know, other people who are in that kind of middle space, I guess, between being like a more mainstream hip hop artist and a more you know put put this in air quotes but conscious rapper, um, you know, I think Quale Chris is quite often uh, underrated in, in that regard. His previous album Guns. Um, I felt, you know, was a, a pretty interesting sort of almost sociological exploration of, you know, various facets of, of America, of, of guns in American society um, from various angles. Um, and, you know, I, I do hope to listen to this record and, and see what he's coming up with on this. I do think that the, the track itself is quite interesting, as you said, because it includes, you know, directly somebody who is just a spoken word artist and the way in which they manage to weave that in in a way that doesn't feel very um, obvious and doesn't feel very, like, pasted in um, is particularly um, striking uh, about the song. So my number two, then, um, is, uh, is a song by Rita Sawayama. 
the uh, London-based artist, uh, Tokyo Love Hotel, off of her uh, new uh, record. Um, so Rita Sawayama's new record is, I mean, to describe it as sonically interesting would be like an understatement. Like, imagine if you will, somebody took like PC music style pop, um, like 90s teen pop, but also like threw a bunch of like new metal guitars and shit in there. Um, and there's also like influences of like J-pop and K-pop and this sort of deliberate artificiality. Um, very interesting artist, um, somebody that I haven't really paid all that much attention to before, like, I think probably to my own detriment. Um, it's a little bit, you know, off the wall, it's a little bit crazy, to be honest. I find listening to the entire record a little bit exhausting, um, even though I think, like, she is um, addressing a lot of themes about um, identity, about community, about um, a feeling of displacement from both one's, um, you know, adopted culture and also one's, uh, you know, na native culture in different ways. Um, so th this is a pretty heady record. I just feel like occasionally the way she delivers it can be a bit overwhelming to take in one shot. But I do think that Tokyo Love Hotel, um, which is probably, I would say, the track on the album which has the least, well, no, there's a couple of tracks, so maybe I take that back. But it's definitely the <laughs> up-tempo song that has the least sort of new metal-y stuff going on, um, but I think that's to its um, to its credit, um, and it manages to deliver these sort of aesthetic ideas in a much more streamlined and much more approachable package, where she is talking about this idea of, um, you know, her family is being from Japan, and then going back to Japan, and not really feeling like she fits in there, and that she's just a tourist there as well, and the fact that she manages to sort of surround it with this very, like, on the surface level, sort of bright shiny appealing pop package but underneath it's sort of about like broken dreams and thwarted desire um and you know this image of the of the you know somewhat skeezy tokyo love hotel that she flames it around um you know manages to again i i like that combination of like you know the surface level and then the the deeper reading or the the way in which the, the surface of the music can contrast with the lyrics and the themes of the song um, so overall, a record that is very interesting and definitely that um, if that sounds, if anything I said there sounds like something that might be appealing to you, uh, by all means do check it out. Um, I do think that it's definitely, an, she's definitely an acquired taste, at least for in my opinion. Um, but uh, this uh, one track I would feel fairly comfortable. I'm saying, you know, uh, maybe that's the gateway in um, to Doreen Asawayama's rest of her work. But Tokyo Love Hotel, my number two track. Yeah, I... Uh, I kind of agree with you in general i think this album kicks a whole lot of ass but it is even though it's not the longest album a kind of exhausting <laughs> and uh somewhat uh not that it's kind of generic or, or not well balanced or detailed but it uh maybe just by virtue of pacing it manages to uh yeah just kind of like a it'd be emotionally exhausting i think it also suffered maybe completely arbitrarily and unfairly for me because it's one of those albums where a number of singles which are all in sequence at the beginning were released and that can oftentimes if i like the singles uh which were excess stfu and comme des garçons a lot you end up burning out in the singles and then that kind of it serves as a block to really gel with the album as like uh, a whole but there's definitely a lot of quality you know
a songcraft and really adventurous production going on. So I definitely think that if you, you're intrigued by any of the descriptors we've thrown out, you should go and listen to this record because it's really good. So my yeah. number one song is, uh, some might say predictably, but uh, certainly was a bit of a decision, uh, was a bit of a kind of late decision for me. And that's uh, the song is for American Dollars. The album is Heavy Light. The artist is U.S. Girls. Uh, I still, I think, like, I, I very much enjoyed uh, the album they put out, even though I think it isn't quite as rewarding on a track-by-track basis as either of their other releases for AD. But the kind of the pivot to... Uh, a more organic sound, a more conscious integration of uh, sort of Motown and girl groups as opposed to the kind of like disco and, uh, you know, synth pop that was the kind of uh, the bedrock, although it was a very adventurous album and it definitely made an improvement the kind of more uh, sample and dub-based stuff from, from her earlier work. Um, I think that the quality songwriting, the commentary, the very black, acerbic humor are all still there and combined with uh, sort of the great melodies. But I found that in general, uh, the album didn't have quite the, the amount of hit, like the sort of hit ratio that her previous did in terms of individual songs really standing as, you know, kind of strong works in their own right. However, I think that Four American Dollars is the track which really uh, sort of stands out for me. I think I'd feel comfortable putting it up with her, sort of her best work. I think it just sort of, um, it's sort of a perfect opener, like it, it sets the mood for the album, it serves as kind of a continuation from where uh, the, the sort of like freestyling sax whales that ended her last album to kind of pick up in a more metered disco groove. And uh, I think it serves as a kind of thesis statement that I really wish the album maybe explored a bit more sort of dealing with the intersection of uh, capitalism and identity and our emotional selves and how uh, we are you know these like very you know just very compromised beings there's certainly a lot of ground to probe there and that oftentimes U.S. girls songs can be a bit sort of abstract or cryptic uh, but I thought that maybe was turned up a bit too much uh, as the album progressed but the what the kind of genesis of what I think could have been an absolutely you know uh, magnificent uh, finish to the trilogy of albums she sort of started out on 4AD with uh is really found in four American dollars. And I also enjoy that it shares uh, an initial with her label. I think that's a nice, cute touch. And I don't know if I wish more artists would do it because I think that would ruin the mood, but uh, certainly was 
one of the tracks which really stood out to me this year. Yeah, um, I I'll be honest and say that Heavy Light didn't really stick with me as much as um, you know definitely her previous record, which I think we both really liked. Um, oh, now I'm blanking on the name. It was uh, a poem on Yes, it, well, it was specifically U.S. Girls in a poem unlimited. Um, but yes, I I felt heavy light as you say. It definitely leaned harder on the like disco and synth pop elements of her sound. But for some reason, and maybe it was just the timing of the release, or maybe I do need to go back and revisit it. Um, it just didn't stick with me as much, and I, I don't know why. Um, I will say that of the songs on the album, I think Four American Dollars is one of the stronger ones, and I definitely agree that like thematically. It's one of the most interesting and layered. Um, and definitely, you know, if you're into that, into what she's been doing previously with these um, explorations of like how capitalism and you know broader socioeconomic currents really shape people's individual identities, which I think you know is the broad um, conceit of her work, um, you will enjoy this one. Um, so my uh, number one song is kind of maybe the opposite in the sense that it comes from an al- album which uh, at least attempted to address a lot of very heavy issues, um, perhaps not as successfully as it wanted to, um, but the song itself is actually relatively light and buoyant um, on that record, kind of serving as a bit of a lighter moment on it, but I think the best moment on it. And it's a Me and You Together song uh, by the 1975 off of their album Notes on a Conditional Form. Now, Notes on a Conditional Form is a very long record. Um, I think I have only managed to slog my way through it once, um, it's just really long, it's really, it, it definitely comes in, in the tradition of, like, old double albums in the sense of, like, it's really long, really lot of different sonic and thematic exploration on it, and they are going a lot broader in terms of their thematic conceits, um, than they were on their previous record, which was very much focused on this idea of, like, the internet and how it affects human relationships. This is going much broader and much more directly political. I mean, the, the thing literally starts with a, uh, a four-minute track, which is like ambient uh, music set to a Greta Thunberg speech. Um, so, you know, we, we know what we're getting into here. Um, and, you know, definitely there were some interesting moments on it, um, some kind of clumsy moments, um, some interesting song title choices, including my, uh, was it Jesus Christ 2005, God Bless America? Um, you know, so it's very much a scattershot project. I think it's one of those that people will probably... Um, pull their own particular favorite tracks out of, but I really, I don't really see this being anybody's favorite 1975 record, uh, but who knows. Uh, but for me, anyway, uh, Me and You Together song works because it's much more sort of, um, uh, it is smaller in scope and smaller in scale. It is much more about this like intimate personal relationship between two people that feels very lived in and very fleshed out and very unique. Um, in the way that he manages to convey it over just like a few fairly simple lines. Um, I also just like that it is like kind of unabashedly going for like a sort of 90s jangle pop kind of uh, um, aesthetic to it. Um, You can compare this to something like The Laws, There She Goes, or um, even something like a Sixpence Done the Witcher, like that sort of jangly guitar bit, which, you know, of course goes all the way back to The Birds. Um, But I think that they managed to do a really good job on it and put this particularly maybe British spin on that. Um, so I think it's, it's the, and I think, I guess, like for me, it really does show that when the band, when the band really just sort of trims their sails back a little bit and they do focus on something that is a little bit lighter thematically, um, I think that's where they're at their best. 
Um, and I think that this song, more than any other other record, really showcased that ability that they do have to really write these really catchy, strong songs that really hit on particular human emotions and in you know pay tribute to older sounds while also updating them in certain ways for for you know the time we live in now. Um, overall, the record, frankly, a bit of a mess, um, but an interesting one. But I do think. There are particular songs on it that are really strong. I definitely think that it's a record where everyone's going to have songs they liked on it, but I don't think any two people are going to agree on like what the good tracks on their side of conditional form were. So um, maybe this is my my overall statement on the record: is the, this is the song that I really liked from their side of conditional form. Yeah, I don't know. I've never really been invested in the arc of the nineteen seventy five enough to push myself through the entirety of Notes on a Conditional Form, so I can't really offer any commentary there. I definitely enjoyed the commitment to just trying stuff uh, in the tracks I heard, and I kind of I don't know, I think like I, I have to give them credit for sort of trying to be if I can say in a way that's not too dismissive like the, the Zoomer YouTube <laughs> uh although i definitely think that they're you know i i say that largely trying as a as a compliment like i think that they're closer to aping what uh like a postmodern internet era 90s u2 sounds like better than arcade fire much much better and i commend them for that because i i i think that they uh they have proven over you know their first sort of decade in the music industry not to be stagnant or be willing to coast off the success of their earliest music which they could have very easily done because there's you know their image and their sort of core songwriting are there uh and i'm i guess all of that to say i'm glad we have the 1975 but i can't promise i'll listen to them yeah, I mean, I, I definitely do think that they are, you know, evolving, you know, increasingly like the U2-ish sort of direction, um, arena rock sort of stuff, and I do think that this is maybe their their moment of overreach, but I, again, I, I do commend them in, in certain ways. So we have a couple of, oh, I do have an honorable mention that I'll just throw in here right now, is that, um, and I'll, we'll discuss her later, but, um, you know, I, I just want to shout out, there was a really good cover of the classic Cars song Drive uh, by Soccer Mommy. Uh, that came out a couple weeks ago. Um, that's just really good, and I think the um, the if you buy it on Bandcamp, uh, it raises money for for our musical artist relief for COVID. So uh, please do check that out because she manages to really make the song her own and uh, very um, intimate and uh, almost sensuous in, in a way. Um, her cover of, of Drive, um, but nevertheless, um, so we're gonna move on to briefly. Um, I have uh, you know we always have our sort of jokey. Uh, song title of the year uh, so far, and uh, I have uh, perhaps probably the longest song title we have ever covered on this uh, on this uh, show, and this is, you know, uh, just to remind, the song title of the year is, um, you know, just the most interesting song title of the year, doesn't necessarily have to uh, be a good song, um, but uh, in this case, you know, it's an alright song, but with a uh, somewhat amazing and confounding title, um, so the song is, uh, Will I Get Cancelled If I Write a Song Called If You Were a Man, You Would Be So Cancelled by Illuminati Hotties. Um, I don't know. It's it's sort of one of those ones that you can just sort of roll over in your head a few times and, you know, 
uh, examine it from different angles. And I appreciate her commitment to, you know, going full on with the, like, metatextual internet irony, um, you know, inherent in the, her uh, name as a musical artist. Um, and it's uh, not a bad little uh, punk track. It's actually kind of in that way... Um, you know, it's a very brief song with this just kind of like one descending sort of riff throughout it. It actually, oddly enough, reminds me of previous champion in this category, um, I Only Fucked You as a Joke. Uh, it's a little bit less direct than that, but I think nevertheless, uh, you know, speaks to uh, speaks to something about the, the current culture. Um, I don't know if uh, you have a, if you have one for this category. I, I do have one. Functioning also, I think, as a, you know, sort of honorable mention. For Nicholas Jars, 2017 to 2019, which I think would be another album which lands in my 6 to 10 range, probably, uh, is one of the deep cuts featuring uh, Lydia Lunch, If You Can't Do It Good, Do It Hard. Uh, I don't know. I think it's an effective, it's a very effective manifesto, and it it's the rare, uh, it's the rare just kind of like, declarative statement that uh you know is on a certain level just completely unadorned and uh you know just kind of trying to invoke a just sort of general like uh you know be you know really angry at stuff on the other hand i think that like slogans that get you fired up can be valuable and certainly speak to a feeling of just kind of isolation or really at the time that track had come out just disempowered disenfranchisement at the hands of the sort of the powers that be and i think that you know within the context of the song which i think is quite a solid song uh although like most of the tracks on the album maybe a less approachable than some of the material off the first against all logic album uh it's certainly been the uh, like the song title, which uh, I don't know. I feel like has given me the most psychic energy in twenty twenty so far. So I give a lot of credit for that. I mean, there's there's many situations which that song title can apply to. Um, so I do think it is very. It's probably the most versatile song title of the year, if nothing else. Um, so uh, we do always have now. Sometimes we have a disappointment. Now I don't know if you have one. Um, I don't for this year, but we also have something that we call our spinach album, um, and I don't have a guilty pleasure either um, for this half a year. Nothing really fell into that category for me, but I do want to talk about just briefly. The spinach album is the album where uh, you know it is uh, sort of of artistic or musical merit, um, but we just it just doesn't jive with you personally for whatever reason. Um, you don't find yourself going back to it, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And mine is uh, the album which got uh, a rare perfect 10 from Pitchfork. Um, it's uh, the album Fetch the Bolt Cutters by uh, Fiona Apple, which I believe, as of, as of this recording, um, has the highest uh, Metacritic score of any album released this year. Um, it's a good record, um, before I say anything else. Like, it is an interesting um, art-pop record that uses a lot of, like, music-concrete sort of elements to uh, flesh out um, what she's doing here, which is, again, these kind of, like, intricately layered songs um, about, you know, the human condition, but in very specific, like, the condition of, of, of being a woman uh, and, you know, these feelings of entrapment, these feelings of um, degradation, these feelings of, um, 
you know, disrespect for men and also just society at large. Um, and, you know, I think, again, this may come down to one of those things of, like, do you relate to what is happening on this record more? Like, are you, uh, not to say personally invested, but, like, is also, you know, is this aesthetic something that necessarily appeals to you on itself? And I've liked um, some of Fiona Apple's previous records. Like, I really liked um, Extraordinary Machine. I was less keen on the... Um, well, the album, which I will, for the sake of brevity, refer to as the Idler Wheel, um, and because I felt that was, like, way too lo-fi and stripped back, this is an interesting middle ground between the two, um, in terms of that. It is still very, it does feel very, um, unrehearsed in certain ways, but it's nevertheless very sonically layered, um, but I, I don't know, like, I mean, the way that Pitchfork review was written is like, this is like, we wouldn't, what music is, we never knew, like, how to understand the idea of performance until Fiona Apple created this record, and I'm just, I, I don't know, I, I don't know, I don't necessarily see it, um, again, it's by no means a bad record, um, and if you are into both thematically and, uh, sonically what she's doing here, um, I think you will get more out of this album than I did. I definitely respect her as an artist, and I respect her particularly as a collaborator, given how many people that she involved in the creation of this record. It really does feel like almost a communal effort in that way, which I do appreciate. But I I don't know. It, it, I listened to it a few times. I liked it. I thought it was an interesting art pop album with music concrete elements. But uh, rewriting my understanding of music, it, it did not necessarily do that. So for that reason, I, I have to give the, the spinach record of this half year to Fiona, Fiona Apple Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Yeah, well, just briefly, I'll knock off and say that my disappointment of the year was uh, the new Algiers record, There Is No Year. Mm. So, I mean... I just think the fact that, like, I had to remind myself the album came out disappointed. Yeah, no, I mean, you're, I you're, and if I, I, if I had a disappointment, that, that would be it, because now that you mention it, I, I do, I, I now vaguely remember that Algiers put out a record this year, and considering the fact that their, the previous record, uh, The Underside of Power, um, was one of my favorite albums of that year, and they also gave one of the most intense performances I've ever seen, um, at a conference, or at a conference, at a concert, in in Paris um, in 2017, uh, where uh, I'm, I'm a riot may have started. Uh, it was unclear at some point. Um, yeah, just the the new uh, Algiers record. Not it was not good, folks. It was not good. No, and I I really want to just take a second to uh, I think you know set speak my piece here on how I feel like Pitchfork sold them out because they quite infamously gave the underside of power a 5.8 and called it, like, too muddy and too kind of indistinct. And I think them really cleaning up their sound, which, look, I don't want to put on the tinfoil hat and say that maybe someone at the label said, hey, maybe you should think about clearing up your sound if you want to stay on Matador. But I really hope they didn't, because I think it was a bad idea. And I'd like to believe that Algiers has uh, more music with the same vigor and energy uh, that they had on their last one. Unfortunately, uh, that, as the kids say, was not it. On Guilty Pleasure, I don't even know if this is a Guilty Pleasure, because I might just cancel him, but uh, West Side Gun being a transphobe is just sort of where I'm at on Griselda. Just Griselda in general is a Guilty Pleasure, because they, they bring back um, all the parts of 90s New York rap, including 
the misogyny and homophobia. <laughs> mm-hmm. So that they do. I mean, if you like, listen, like, I mean, this is a dead question that we don't really need to get into, but just like, I mean, yes, if you if you're into like '90s, like, stomp you in the fucking face, like New York rap, and you just want it unadorned, what it was at the time, um, yeah, you will you will like that record. You you may hate yourself for liking it, but you will you will like it. So, and then for my, uh, I mean, the reason I feel comfortable taking this time is because my spin gem is uh, also Fiona Apple's Fetch the Bolt Cutters. Largely for the same reasons that you gave. I think it's, I would even go far as to say I think it's a very strong album uh, in terms of how it, uh, you know, like, I think a lot of her projects, but just the sort of combat, her, like, the really expansive palette she's drawn up, maybe is the kind of like the the, the the little spice that carries it across the finish line to being what I would consider like a like a, a, a quote unquote great album. But uh, just I don't know, because of a bit of the pacing and um, you know, just sort of the 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 all the instrumentation is very creative and detailed. It's sort of it's in service to a lot of maybe somewhat unconventional in terms of the arrangements, but it's structurally and in terms of like, are there, you know, kind of instrumental breakdowns? Uh, I don't know. It's just sort of like the album doesn't grip me so much for return listens, even though I have no qualms against any of its sort of individual components, because I think that on a, you know, component level in terms of, you know, the, the, the production, the arrangements, the creativity, the songwriting, the performances, there's a whole lot of quality there. But uh, I think both of us are just sort of on the same page if, you know, maybe we'd uh, sort of forced to rank it out of 10, uh, you know, maybe have a bit of disagreement, but I think generally on the same page about uh, feeling that it was a very strong album, maybe even one of her best, but maybe not being that breakthrough that if you're not already a big fan of hers, uh, it might not be that transcendent 10 out of 10 album for you. Yeah, I, I think that's where I'm kind of at with it is like, maybe if I hadn't have read that, that 10 out of 10 Pitchfork review and, you know, which perhaps speaks to the volume of psychological weight which I attach to a 10 out of 10 Pitchfork review, which perhaps I should not, um, but and, but it wasn't just that. It was it was more across the board. Um, perhaps it gave me, like, a bit of a, one of those, like, not even false expectations, but I'm like, like you know, it's just, oh, like, I want to take this down a peg, like, even subconsciously. Um but again, like, if I was forced to rank it out of 10, like, on a scale chart, like, I probably would give it, like, 8.5, not, like, it is a very good record. It's just that, like, the effusive praise and the fact that it was, I guess, for me, it was, like, it was kind of less experimental than what I what it was hyped as to me, which made me I think me that's the thing feel... for me as well. Yeah. 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 I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's kind of the bottom line. So... Um, we'll move on to our albums now. Now, I do have one brief honorable mention, which I just want to do very quickly up top, which is, um, the reason it's an honorable mention is it's not truly a new album, um, but uh, 
Neil Young um, from his archival releases finally put out um, the sort of legendary uh, Lost album, Homegrown, uh, this year. Um, and it's pretty good. Um, if you want to hear like a mid-70s, um, what, what could have happened, you know, if Neil Young kept moving in the direction that he was moving on uh, Harvest, um, but with a bit darker of a thematic tone and a bit more uh, serious of a um, subject matter and a bit more... Uh, and, and a bit more rock instrumentations on some of the songs. Um, it's it's pretty good, um, and you know it's interesting to hear it revived. Um, you know, in in this archival work that he's doing, um, and I appreciate that he finally put it out there for for people to 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 listen to. And you know, I think it does, in my opinion, it's it's definitely not as good as a as a tonight's the night or an on the beach. Or, you know, the, the best Neil, or everybody knows this is nowhere, like the best Neil Young records. Uh, but I would say it's, you know, a solid second tier Neil Young record. Like, I would say it's, I would, pound for pound, song for song, it is probably better than Harvest. Um, like, there are better songs on Harvest, but, like, th- you know, there is a lot of filler or stuff that does not age well on Harvest. Um, whereas I think this one is much more aligned with what he was doing thematically uh, later on. Um, so I, I, I think it's definitely worth spinning, um, you know, particularly if you're a young fan, obviously. Even if you're just a casual listener, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely worth living it, giving it at least one spin to see a kind of interesting um, direction that Neil Young could have taken and a little bit more commercial than the, than the sort of like totally uh, weird and weary uh, direction he ended up taking in the mid-70s. Uh, but yeah, so uh, that's my very brief honorable mention for, for Homegrown by Neil Young. Do you, have, do you have any honorable mentions? Yeah, I'll just throw out three quick honorable mentions to Phoebe Bridgers, Arca, and Eve's Tumor for making albums that were really good and I really liked and would probably round out my 6 to 10 range, uh, but uh, are not because they did not make the top five and they didn't okay. make the track list. Okay, so yeah, I uh, two of those will be discussed by me. Uh, one of those will not. I will leave you in suspense as to which is which. Okay, so let's get into our top five albums then. So I'll allow uh, Isaac, uh, you can go first with your number five record. Yes, my number five record is from uh, some artists who have been... Uh, pretty common features on my list for the last few years. Uh, they've sort of delivered again. The album is Shrines. The artist is Armin Hammer. I think first off, uh, just for the uninitiated, Armin Hammer is sort of underground, uh, abstract, new uh, hip-hop duo featuring uh, Billy Woods and Elucid. Uh, Elucid sort of handles... Uh, a bit more to the production, but they, you know, sort of feature a very curated list of collaborators on each project that I think gives uh, the discography a really kind of varied and rich quality, which I appreciate. I think they've added to that with this new album. I think it it's sort of a different beast on, uh, no pun intended, than uh, their last one, Paraffin. Uh, the, the pun is because there's a tiger on the cover. I guess people can't see the cover. But um, that it's it's uh, a different... It's sort of aiming for different things 
than their last one, Paraffin, is. Paraffin was sort of a richer album, more intoxicating. I don't say more psychedelic, because I think both of them have those qualities, but maybe more atmospheric. I think that Shrines is kind of more focused. I think it flows the best out of the four Arm & Hammer records. And it certainly has, although there were a fair few guests on their debut race music, uh, certainly the most features since then. And I certainly think the highest ratio of tracks, which have one or more guests. Um, I think generally that's used to the album's credit. And the bringing in the kind of variety of voices helps give sort of each track personality and whereas there was a sort of overwhelming assault of sort of rich atmosphere to paraffin that worked i think that shrines sort of feels like you know kind of you know uh getting going above the clouds and kind of being assaulted by very harsh light and very crisp cold air and um it, the, the way they as they usually the do interpolate topics of uh you know life in america uh economics politics culture pop culture sex drugs all the kind of general milieu of hip-hop but done with a very uh very sharp pens and very expressive performances uh and i think that really what uh kind of vaulted shrines over some of the other albums i've been mentioning is how replayable it is and i think a large part that's due to them committing to more pared down song structures of uh sort of more uh of tracks where only one of them is holding sway uh that are more in the like 90 minute to 90 minute 90 second to two minute range uh and sort of that with the guests and uh, kind of cleaner production that sounds like more live instrumentation, uh, even though there are uh, some also some standout lo-fi production work uh, as well that increased variety and focus uh, makes it, I think, their most re-listenable project and lifts it in just over the others into my top five. So, um, I think you're much more familiar with Armand Hammer's work than I am. Um, I think I've only really listened, really prompted by you to uh, their last two albums, this one and Paraffin. And I do think that uh, in both cases, you know, these are very dense albums, I would say, both sonically and lyrically. Um, definitely, this is, you know, hip hop of a old school um like almost like early like it reminds me a lot of like early Wu-Tang in the sense of like it is kind of psychedelic even though it doesn't you know necessarily gesture in that way overtly but it takes on this like hazy quality through the use of like these lo-fi samples these um very intricate and like layered lyrics where they're doing like internal references and pop culture references and creating these different scenarios and all that type of thing so definitely if you like something like again like early Wu-Tang or I would even say something like Bring the Pain era Method Man where it is this kind of like almost cold clinical like methodical uh, but very like um, very intricately wrapped and very intricately written uh, lyrics 
um, which, you know, again, touch on all kinds of different things. I definitely think that Arm and Hammer are certainly more overtly, not even overtly, but they bring in more po- sociopolitical sort of themes um, into their work that maybe somebody like Wu-Tang didn't necessarily have. Um, so I definitely think that this is an album that's worth listening to, particularly if you want to explore this area of hip-hop uh, more. Um, I just, I for me, it's a little bit still a little bit inaccessible. I don't want to say inaccessible, but there's something I'm missing, and I'm not sure what it is precisely, because I do, I like listening to the record. I like hearing these guys spin these stories and these intricate verses, but there's just something about it that, I, I doesn't click with me quite right. And I don't know, maybe I'm just too stupid. Maybe, like, I need something a little bit more <coughs> direct and impactful in my hip-hop. I, I don't know what it is precisely, but it does keep it off my top five, even though I do think that this is a, a very strong record. Uh, and it's, in my opinion, it's, um, it's, it, it's both better and worse in different ways than Paraffin. I, I definitely think Paraffin, in my opinion, had a bit more... Um, thematic directness, at least on some of the tracks, where they were sort of talking about like strained personal and interpersonal type of relationships. You don't really get that here, um, but I think the beat work on this one, in my opinion, is a little bit better. Um, but yeah, it's it's a strong record, but definitely it's the Armand Hammer remain for me a bit of an acquired taste. <coughs> so my number five is like maybe very much completely opposite direction. It's very <coughs> very direct and. Uh, I wouldn't say substance substanceless, but it's it's definitely a very direct record and and one that uh, is also very brief uh, album coming in at under uh, thirty minutes is the new album by Diet Sig. Do you wonder about me? Um, so this is a pretty straightforward one for me. This is nice, sharp, punchy alt rock in a compact album format um, with you know songs that don't overstay their welcome. They they know what they want to get to and they get to it um, quick and they get out. Uh, but I think that that's you know leads me to a sort of brevity as a sort of wit about where Diet Sig are going. Previously, I think that their songwriting hasn't necessarily like lived up to the tightness or the immediacy of their sound. I think that they do a very good job at kind of finding that sweet spot between um, '90s style alt rock and like more punk sort of sounds. They're in that nice sweet spot where it has that you know, bit of aggression, that bit of forward momentum, but it's not fully tipping over uh, into that, and there is still a bit of sweetness that's provided by the vocals um, and their approach to some of the guitar work. Um, Overall, this album is one where I don't really have a whole lot to say about it, per se, because I just think it's a very well-written, well-constructed, very straightforward type of alt, uh, alt alt-rock, alt-pop type of album. Uh, But I definitely think if you're in the market for this sort of thing, uh, you know, uh, it it will reward you in in those ways, even though they may be a little bit more simple. Uh, I do think that there are some interesting, like, miracle sort of themes here about loneliness, about loss, about um, this feeling of wondering. And, you know, even though the album was obviously conceived prior to COVID, it does nevertheless have some sort of resonances in that way because it is a lot of it about, like, wondering if you actually matter to other people and wondering if, uh, you know, your relationships with them are as strong as you believe them to be or they are on the surface. So there are some definitely, I don't want to say that the album is without substance, but it definitely gets that substance out there in a very direct way and in a way that um, leaves you wanting more. And I think that that's, for this type of record, the thing that you want. So, uh, yeah, my number five, Do You Wonder About Me by Diet Sig. Well, I, I definitely think I listened to the album when it came out. 
And I've always been a booster of Diet Safe, who, if I'm not mistaken, are from Montreal, Quebec, but I could be wrong about that. I, I remember reading that at one point. I believe they are. I believe they are from Montreal. Yeah, so, nope, they're from New York. It's a different band. from. It's a, they came out around the same time. It's killing me. Oh. Uh, I'm sure we'll okay, figure well. it out. We'll, we'll go back and... So, okay, I can't give them that. Uh, I have liked the material in the past, and uh, I just... I don't... I think that uh, it came out, uh, I think, early May was... Or yeah. Maybe I have the dates wrong. Maybe it was late May, but I just remember it coming out on a crowded release weekend, so I, I don't think I maybe gave it the time it deserved, but I, I definitely enjoy their work and remember liking the singles so i will probably have to get back to it sometime this summer so okay so my number four album is one that i've been uh i've sort of been sitting with for a very long time and i think it might have slightly fallen in my estimation but it is still i think a very formidable album that i think that's uh, you know, circumstances may have not let it be maybe evaluated on its own merits and to not be so cryptic anymore. Uh, the album is Misanthropocene. The artist is Grimes. And I think it was really just quite a strong album. I really was kind of surprised by a lot of the indifference I saw. And maybe it just is a fact of like the the kind of the the magic is gone and uh, you know this this kind of over this kind of concept and the aesthetic clash is just worn out on people and I certainly don't begrudge anyone that but even though at the end of the day I do think I prefer Art Angels I understand why Grimes who I think in a few interviews have said things to the effect of that she feels like this is her most complete record, just sonically. And I, I, I definitely, like I said, maybe still prefer, certainly Art Angels and maybe Visions at the end of the day, but I think this is still quite a formidable record in terms of uh, its atmosphere, in terms of what Grimes really just brings in a way that very few other artists of this time and in this lane have done in terms of uh, the sort of matching, especially on like drum patterning and bass and synths to vocal performance in uh, such like a perfect complementary way that it feels like it, it these songs manage to feel uh, like lived in even as you first hear them. And I think that um, on tracks like 4AM and uh, Delete Forever, we see kind of continuations of the club-influenced tracks or the kind of uh, like country alt-influenced tracks that, you know, Grimes and her label form has sort of mixed into her projects and i think that they uh they're like at the end of the day to me just strong evolutions of those different sides of her you know musical palette that also tie in 
with the broader arc and thematic concerns of the record. Uh, I think it ultimately fall. There's like maybe one or two tracks which, well, I don't think are out and out duds. Don't hold up to that standard. I think on the whole, you know, album cuts such as um, well, unless there's so few album, uh, I think pretty much every song has a music video attached, so I hesitate to call them album cuts. But songs like uh, You'll Miss Me When I'm Not Around and I Adore You, I think are deserve to go in uh, stand against album highlights from uh, other Grimes records, but featuring, uh, you know, wrapped up in a very uh, consistent and detailed package that I think in terms of just a pure production, if not in songwriting, is more consistent than even on Art Angels, where I thought, even though I love that album to death, the midsection is a little bit uh, sort of lets down the kind of pure blood sugar rush roller coaster that the uh, front and back sections do, and it doesn't quite line up. Uh, I think that even though it's a bit longer, and some people might say a bit more of a slog, the consistency and detail of Miss Anthropocene makes it a worthy addition to what I think is Grimes' uh, absent anything else, very strong discography. Yeah, I um, quite liked this record, and actually, you know, if it were, uh, you know, if it were, if I had a number six on my on my albums list, it would be the, the number six. I I kind of thought about putting it on my my uh, list. Ultimately, left it off, and I think for similar reasons that you point out, it is there are a couple of tracks on here that I think are relatively. Du- I'm not going to say does, but they're relatively less uh, compelling than the other material on the record. But I do think that it's interesting, and I don't know if it's just because of when it came out or like the controversies around Grimes' personal life or the fact that, like, the aesthetic that she once had and to a certain degree still has, like, very clearly no longer aligns with, like, what we know about her is really, like, driving people away from her or, like, some of her personal behavior or whatever. All that to say, I do think that the record is pretty underrated in terms of the way people um, are talking about it. Um, And I definitely think you know, as compared to her other records, I still think Art Angels is, is a better record than this, but I definitely do agree with you that this is like, and I, I agree with her as, as the artist herself, in that I think it is her most uh, sonically and thematically unified work. Now, whether or not that makes it her best one is, you know, up to your own interpretation. I don't think the songwriting is consistent as is as consistently good as on Art Angels, uh, but I do think that it feels fuller as an album than that and definitely fuller than Visions. Um, I mean, I do think that the approach that she took to the the themes on the record about, like, well, you know, misanthropocene, so, you know, there you go, folks, um, you know, is maybe biting off more than she could chew in a certain way or approaching it from an angle that's, like, very aestheticized in a way that people didn't really like and didn't feel that there was, like, a, I guess, political urgency to it that it maybe should have had in terms of addressing these very heavy themes. But I think, you know, it's a valid approach as an artist to, to go at that at it from that direction. And I, uh, you know, I, I don't think that that necessarily hurts the album for me. 
Um, I think where it ultimately misses my list is just a couple of inconsistent tracks. And um, as well, just the fact that, like, I think even though it is sonically unified, it, it can be a little bit samey at points, um, unless she's, like, really trying to do something different. Like, you know, on, like, a delete forever, like, the blending of this electronica with the, the country music type of acoustic guitar, um, obviously very, um, very striking. Um, and, you know, and again, remain to the thematic conceit of, uh, you know, the melding of, you know, human and technology. Um, but overall, uh, a, a good record, um, a strong entry in Grimes' catalog, and one that I think is being very underrated. And who knows, you know, if we do end up doing a top 10 at the end of the year, it may appear there. Just slightly misses my cutoff. So my number four record, and it's one that you mentioned before, is uh, the new album by Yves Tumor, Heaven to a Tortured Mind. Um, so yeah, I'm somebody who, you know, has always been intrigued by Yves Tumor previous to this but never really could get into their music. And I guess it was just because, like, a little too noisy, a little too raucous, like, not raucous, but a little too abstracted and a little too just sort of paint, paint splatter type of thing without necessarily um, feeling like this was going anywhere or meaning anything. And I guess what, what works about this record to me is that they've really organized the chaos in a way that, um, I feel, uh, you know, much more comfortable about recommending, but also just hits my ears in a better way. So what I'll compare this record to is it's definitely, um, you know, it's it's definitely a, a psychedelic record, but it's psychedelic in a like kind of like bad acid trip sort of way. It's like that meaner, um, darker, grittier kind of psychedelia. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to find a, a, a good comparison but what it's it's escaping my mind at the moment maybe like a something like a love um uh forever oh, forever begins um where it's like there's a it, it is psychedelic but and it has those textures and tones but it's sinister it's in a way sinister and it's a little bit warped and a little bit distorted um and i think you know what what really helps with that is the fact that they kind of approach that idea of kind of this bad faith sort of druggy atmosphere um from different uh approaches and elements so some of the songs are like really heavy on like interesting kind of like acoustic or uh, acoustic or electric guitar bleed-ins and then there's songs where you have like male female vocal dynamics you have some songs that even have a bit of a funk and neo soul type of flavor to them um so yeah, to me, it was just a really interesting exploration of like a, a dark psychedelia type of sound in a way that felt very natural and very organic and not uh, forced. Um, and overall, I, I think it's just a really great record from a band that I've always been intrigued by and wanted to see what they do, but for whatever reason, just didn't click with me before. This is where I feel they really click, they're firing all, all cylinders, and I think that the, the, the fact that they you know take it from this perspective of... Um, you know, this idea of, like, mental stress and, um, again, like, the, you know, uh, maybe not directly, but a little bit obliquely, like, the consequences of, like, substance abuse and, and that type of thing, um, and just, like, general kind of mental degradation that they uh, managed to really unify the sonic and lyrical sort of themes on the record um, is, for me, uh, the reason why it uh, appears as my number four. Yeah, I think I'm in a similar situation like you are with the Grimes record, although I maybe have slightly different nitpicks where I think it will very, could very probably feature in a top 10. And I really, really like the record, but I think it's maybe 
was too much of a swerve for me, and I was hoping for them to push their, even if they're going in a more sort of accessible, organic direction, and leaning, like, away from abrasion and into uh, a more kind of seductive psychedelia, I was just itching for a bit more abrasion, a bit more sour. Like, I just wanted them to turn the knobs. Uh, and it's entirely a, a preferential thing and based on maybe unfair expectations coming off safe in the hands of love, which is an album, one of the albums for me that uh, has really been kind of a, a slow burn rise uh, in my estimation over the decade. And really, it was, you know, only well over a year after it came out that it really clicked with me as a whole. So I think with that maybe fresh in my mind, I was looking for them to fire, to sort of turn things up. But I think that what the album is, is very formidable and pretty much quality front to back, maybe even more so than the, the kind of two or three albums I might put ahead of it uh, that just kind of rep did things that vibed with me more. Uh, but as as a as a album, it's it's very strong. Uh, so my number three album is uh, a uh, really I think a career highlight in what has been a uh, discography of highlights uh, and sort of a a direction that I might well. Actually, given how much I support this artist, I would have uh, endorsed any direction they did, but I think they picked the, the perfect one at the end of the day. Uh, the album is St. Cloud. The artist is Waxahachie. Uh, yeah, what can I say? I, uh, I really dig uh, her, I think, now fifth album. Um, it, it represents, you know, I think in any singer-songwriter who adopts a very honest, diaristic style there's an aspect to coming out with albums especially if those albums are very individually strong and sort of set themselves up as having you know goals and ideas beyond just uh, the songwriting uh that each you know saw each album kind of feels like a chapter in a, you know an ongoing saga that's developing and i think that it's just particularly the kind of joy and peace and reflection that uh, Katie Crutchfield is able to convey in more stripped-down songwriting, uh, you know, ditching the band from Out in the Storm and returning to a kind of more hi-fi, more, you know, kind of classic country-infused take on our sort of earlier singer-songwriter material. Uh, I think maybe the fuzz is a bit missed, uh, but I think that ditching the fuzz and going for this more refined palette uh, is the right move in terms of supporting both where she's at in the trajectory of her, you know, artistic output, but also just on a, on a, you know, album level of supporting uh, songwriting. And 
to me, this is maybe just the, it's an album that really kind of earns its stripes more than anything else on the consistency of its songwriting. I think Kay Crutchfield proves that she's one of the best three-minute songwriters uh, alive today. Uh, the tunes are punchy. They're attention-grabbing. They all have a moment or two that will make you smile dozens of listens in. And it's uh, just that level of consistency and the way that her, you know, each album represents a change in mood and a palette of instrumentation that has not only kind of grown more clear and purposeful as her career has progressed, but also uh, changed to reflect the mood of the album and, you know, just assuming, but uh, at least seems to me intended to evoke uh, the mood of, uh, you know, what uh, the songs and the moments and the, uh, the, the, the state of, you know, her life and her collaborators' lives as artists uh, went into each project. So I'm, uh, I can say nothing, but I'm grateful that we keep getting Waxahachie albums. And uh, that's all. Well, this may come as a surprise to you, um, given that, uh, you know, my, my previous, like, always having a Waxahachie record appear on my list. But uh, it actually doesn't appear on my list, even though I think if, like, Grimes would be my number six, St. Cloud would probably be my number seven. Um, it's a good record, um, and I think it is interesting to see her go much more directly for this kind of, like, classic country sound that she has hinted at around the edges on previous records, but this very much is going directly for it. Um, and I, de I def it definitely finds Katie Crutchfield, like, thematically much more at peace, much more, uh, much less anguished than on previous records. Um, and, you know, I, I congratulate her, you know, on her, on her personal success and that things seem to be going well for her. Um, you know, maybe, of course, this was all written and conceived before the, the current, uh, garbage fire that we are engulfed in, so perhaps her next record will have some more, you know, sermon drong to it. Um, and I guess that's what it comes down to for me is, like, and I, I feel really bad about saying this, but, like, the thing that always appealed to me about Waxahachie was this idea of like being very direct and diaristic and and balancing the uh, balancing the, the the sweet with the you know the, I keep saying this but the sweet with the sour but in the sense of like these very direct emotions and that she could be very direct about maybe more complicated feelings or maybe more ambiguous type of situations like um, you know there, there's a song on uh, Cerulean Salt where she's talking about, like, going to her friend's wedding and this, like, very, like, intermingled and mixed feeling of, like, sadness and happiness. And I guess I just don't feel that as much on St. Cloud. It feels a little bit too one-note emotionally and also sonically for me. Um, and I guess, you know, that's where, you know, the fuzz is missing, both, both thematically and also sonically for me. Um, and I feel like there are couple other artists that I feel like maybe gave me this year a bit more of what I uh, really loved about Waxahachie initially um, in a bit of a different uh, way but that emotional directness uh, but nevertheless I do think that this is a, a strong record and I think that uh, Katie Crutchfield remains um, a very uh, a great songwriter who's capable of coming up with these very uh, direct uh, and very classically 
formed songs, but nevertheless uh, putting her own spin on those forms. Um, for me, it's just I feel like there was a, a bit of complexity missing to this one. But I certainly don't. I, I certainly don't uh, judge her for like being at a happier place in her life. And like this is, and I feel like as an artist, she's somebody that really needs to write from a very honest and and direct place. And this is what came out in this in this instance. So actually, speaking of that. Um, my number three then is uh, the kind of the opposite of that in the sense of like this is a more fleshed out version of an artist who previously was mostly sort of a solo uh, um, musician. Um, this is the new album by Soccer Mommy, uh, Color Theory. Um, so, you know, Soccer Mommy's previous record, Clean, uh, I really loved. Um, I felt that it, you know, managed to capture uh, in a lot of ways that, that early Waxahachie spirit and a bit of a poppier um, aesthetic um, but you know I did feel at the time like there were there was an under ambition in terms of the sonics on it um, whereas I think she has really uh, brought that to the forward on, on this new record and it feels much more full and fleshed out and a full band type of record but nevertheless it retains that really specific emotional directness that I've really love, come to love from her as an artist and yeah, I just think that, um, you know, there are a couple of tracks, like there's a song, uh, the song Yellow is the Color of Her Eyes, which is kind of like really elongated, where I think her reach uh, as, as sonically exceeds her grasp a little bit. But uh, overall, I think that she managed to like make these songs that are much more, co- like the, the, the complexity and the layeredness of the music now matches the co- complexity and the layeredness of the emotions that she's talking about. And, you know, again, I, I like that she writes about, you know, not just like I'm happy, I'm sad, but rather these kind of emotionally complex or ambiguous sort of situations that you find yourself in um, and just that sort of thing. And, you know, songs like Circle the Drain, uh, songs like The Opener. Um, oh, gosh, lost my train of thought. Um, well, anyway, I'm sure it will come back to me. Um, but the Bloodstream, uh, The Opener. And I think it's you know, manages to speak to kind of this sense of, like, directionless, uh, directionlessness in a certain way, ennui in a certain way, um, but, and manages to sort of weave um, a bit more electronics and a bit more modern production into her, like, foundation in 90s kind of indie rock, but then also in things that are, like, a little bit more oriented towards country. Like, there's definitely some twanginess in here from time to time that speaks to that. And, yeah, I just uh, really love this record. Um, I felt that it, uh, in some ways, I, I definitely think that um, some of the songs are maybe a bit less memorable as songs than on Clean, but I do think that she managed to put together um, an album that w- works much more cohesively in an album and is much more consistent um, in terms of the songwriting. So Color Theory by uh, Soccer Mommy. Yeah, that was an album that I think maybe just by virtue of the time that it came out, I didn't sit with it long enough it was an album that kind of read to me as maybe some an album that is maybe yet to be talked about in more depth uh in terms of really kind of varying the sonic palette and approaches i think it certainly had uh you know a bit more detail and uh maybe a bit more punch than uh, their first record but it uh it wasn't one that maybe just in terms of uh you know what was really grabbing me uh, around that time that I didn't stick with 
uh, long enough in the songwriting to kind of wash over. So definitely one I'll have to check out again, but uh, not one I can say I've been listening to a lot. Uh, so my number two album is uh, The Rarest Thing for Us, which is an album which you cannot find on streaming. Uh, and it, you know, feels weird to put on this list because uh, the band itself is defunct and there were a lot of fraught circumstances surrounding uh, why that happened. However, since it's still available to purchase only on Bandcamp on the off chance that uh, my recommendation by leaving it on my list induces someone to do that. Uh, I think it was even on a minuscule level with Lyle that, of course, the album is peaceful as hell. The artist Black Dresses. Uh, I don't know. This is a weird one. Uh, I have been... I was a big fan of their second project of 2018. Initially, just because of the title. The title was uh, Love and Affection for Stupid Little Bitches. Uh, but the album itself was very good. It backed up, uh, it backed up uh, a title of that magnitude, and it demonstrated like a real mastery of songcraft, of dynamics, sort of kind of taking uh, the like uh, distorted. Uh, not even so much PC music bubblegum bass, but just like hyper distorted lo-fi electro clash and noise punk with very sour uh, sort of TikTok that referred to dismissively as TikTok pop, but very kind of sour future pop melodies. And uh, it was that combination and that consistency and just the raw emotional energy that Black Dresses left on the table consistently across their albums, which I thought then going back and anticipating this new album really kind of got better with each project. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, not to give myself too much credit, but uh, I was, you know, uh, hoping I was... Already a fan of this album before it came to streaming, hoping that they would find a larger audience. I thought they deserved it. Uh, unfortunately, they were uh, uncomfortable with uh, their newfound profile, and there was a series of unfortunate incidents that I don't really feel qualified to break down, but suffice to say that the group's disbanded, their music is no longer on streaming, so it is difficult to hear. But uh, Peaceful as Hell, I think, is maybe the definitive album of the spirit of 2020 uh, because it so perfectly captures the vibe of just kind of pushing through a river of shit, not knowing where you're going, but knowing that you have to do it, and it's okay. Uh, but it doesn't do so really through release. Or through motivation or through transcendence but it does through catharsis it is really confrontational music but it's that mix of confrontation and very tightly wound sour pop melodies and song structures that i i think really kind of elevated the band beyond a lot of other new artists who are trying to kind of make music in this lane 
so I can't really say anything except I hope that the members of Black Dresses uh, feel empowered to make more music in some capacity uh, because this is a really strong album and a very, I think, powerful album considering uh, the time it came out and the kind of raw emotion and catharsis that they packed into it. So uh, strongly recommended. Uh, I hope people have a chance to listen to this album. Yeah, so uh, I'll be honest and say that I haven't listened to this record. Um, I am a little bit familiar with Black Dresses, um, mostly through their, what is their debut called? Waste Isolation, uh, in capital letters, screaming at you. Um, their their debut, I was a little bit familiar with that. Uh, quite interesting uh, project, interesting record. And yeah, I mean, the thing is, I mean, not to delve too deeply into this controversy, because, you know, I'm not, I don't think either of us are really qualified to speak on what happened, but... I think it is, um, you know, it's obviously very bad for the, the band members, and it's unfortunate that their uh, foray into music had to end in this way. Um, and, you know, I feel like it does maybe speak to the the risk that artists uh, take, um, you know, maybe particularly when they're, when they're women coming from this, um, you know, speaking about very traumatic incidences in their own life through their music. It, it really does speak to the the risks that are inherent in, in doing that um, tragically. Um, but all that uh, being said, um, I definitely felt that their music previously that I have heard um, was quite uh, interesting and, and, as you say, kind of a really interesting take on, on art pop. Um, and, you know, they're, they're Canadian, so, so shout out to them. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it, it's... Um, it's unfortunate that they had to that they had to end their project the way that they did, um, but ultimately, uh, you know, I'm glad that uh, they left us some documentation of it, and that I hope that uh, people do do listen to this as, as I am going to uh, intend to after this after this podcast. So yeah, uh, my uh, number two, continuing with uh, albums previously mentioned, um, actually is uh, Run the Jewels Four by Run the Jewels. Um, yeah, so I I do agree with what Isaac was saying earlier about how, you know, to me, I, I do feel that this is a better record than RTJ3, and I, I would also, I would maybe go so far as to venture it's a better record than RTJ1. I think RTJ2, I think that is probably still the consensus overall pick for the best of the four. But to me, I a few things about this record that really stood out to me, like, and again, maybe this is just me, maybe I'm stupid, but like, and maybe particularly in this year, I don't know, like, sometimes you just need big stomping hip-hop songs that are about like but they're not just about like you know beating some guy down or like you know punching you in the face in the mosh pit like it is about fighting back against like social injustice and oppression um but with like a big like fuck you type of directness to it and you know obviously you know people have debated killer mike's uh, personal politics and all that type of thing but i think that you know on wax on record i think he does manage to really capture this spirit and do it in a way that's not just it doesn't feel facile it doesn't feel um it doesn't feel performative it feels very lived in and very direct and it's like somebody's screaming at you because they've just had it with everything that's going on in their life um and the 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 dangers and the uh, oppression that they're facing and just this kind of catharsis to it 
And, you know, the fact that it's also, like, funny, that it's also sonically layered, that both um, LP and Killer Mike uh, are great uh, MCs. Like, I think LP is often, uh, certainly not as good an MC as Killer Mike, but, like, often gets underrated as an MC in the group. I think there are some great lines and some great bars that he has on this record, some great verses. And, yeah, I mean, I think this is also uh, the record where, you know, Killer Mike, I think, is much more willing to get, like, direct about, like, his own very specific experiences. Like, everybody's, of course, commented on the fact that, like, you know, there's a, even though um, the record was obviously written prior to, to you know, recent um, events and, and, you know, recent um, incidences, let's say, for, for the sake of, uh, you know, not, not derailing this further, um, you know, the fact that, like, on a verse, like, Walking in the Snow, that he manages to, like, evoke this image of um, watching, you know, images of police brutality and, like, the fact that people are so disconnected from it um, that they don't even really care is, you know, just really speaks to, the shamefully, speaks to a lot of the timelessness of, of a lot of this material, but also speaks to, like, how much um, he can directly, like, paint these pictures in lyrics and I also think that, like, um, the sonic uh, environment that LP is crafting here is a little bit less, like, glitchy and electronic than it was on, definitely than on RTJ3. And to me, it feels a little bit more wedded to a classic hip-hop type of aesthetic. Um, like, you even have, you know, um, some, some classic hip-hop samples in there, like a DJ Premier um, type of thing and, and that type of stuff. And... Uh, yeah, like, and, you know, you, the I think the guests, the, the few that are on here are well chosen, um, you know, as we talked about with Just, um, you know, the very kind of audacity of, like, I'm going to put Pharrell and Zach De La Roca um, on my song, and not only are they both going to be on the song, they're going to sing different distinct parts of the hook, um, and, you know, there's a pretty credible, like, two chains verse on here, if you're into that, um, and, yeah, I just feel like, to me, this is what I wanted from hip-hop this year, um, I just wanted these kind of stomping songs that really uh, do, even as much as they swagger around and they are fun to listen to, they also do speak directly to um, things that are, are going on right now. And it feels very of the moment and very timely to me. Um, and final note, um, it manages to incorporate um, a, a Gang of Four sample um, in a very uh, a clever way. Um, and if you're a nerd like me, uh, you'll of course appreciate that. Um, so yeah, um, OTJ for my, my number two album of the year. Yeah, I mean, I think I kind of, I was maybe excessively negative because I was trying to explain why it didn't make my list, but I only felt that was justified because it is such a undeniably rock solid record and undeniably successful in doing what it sets out to accomplish. So, uh, I think it comes down just to an issue more of taste. I think the fact that, you know, our, the Armin Hammer record and the RTG record came out a week from each other is interesting because they make a very interesting contrast of what kind of abstract or more direct hip-hop, certainly not commercial, certainly not, you know, beholden to pop interest or, you know, operating at a very high level, how, um, you know, just kind of like uh, a sort of uh, a demonstration of all that it can offer uh, in terms of creating albums which speak to the moment, which are, you know, rich with different textures, ideas, and both, I think, in their different ways have, you know, a very uh, 
very well-developed sense of dark humor, which uh, I think draws mm. me to both of them. But I don't think that either of that so much really applies to my top album of 2020, which I'll just maybe quickly get offered the only note that this is a weird year for me in that I really like 10 or 11 albums, but I have difficulty picking one that in my mind is just the obvious, the obvious clear most, you know, MVP in my mind uh, in terms of my preference at the end of the day. However, um, this is a list and I need to attempt some kind of somewhat intellectually rigorous and honest assessment. So uh, my number one album uh, is, I think, uh, really a genuinely rich and well-conceived art pop record. Uh, the album is Set My Heart on Fire Immediately, the artist Perfume Genius, and I think that if you have not heard this record, you should go out and listen to this record as soon as possible. I think it has um, just a songwriting and arrangement being demonstrated at such a high level where even though, you know, uh, the vocals are not always the most immediately sort of, I don't want to say accessible, but there can be a sort of certain distance or, you know, there can be a falsetto or a mixing decision that kind of plays into a mood or is going for a specific mood that I think it might be less immediately engaging than some other art pop. But I think the mix of, you know, uh, the mix of delicate arrangements, strings, synths, twinkling percussion, and then the very limited but, you know, I think well-executed delivery of harsher guitars um, really kind of plays into the album's concerns about fragility and strength and sort of living with the dichotomy of that and, you know, going so far, I think, not too much of a stretch to assert that that's something that on the one level or another is pretty universal with the human condition. And on that basis, I think this record is really one that, uh, although maybe I can see people preferring other Perfume Genius records, uh, in my mind, really a, a career highlight and uh, a future classic, even if uh, it might not be, uh, you know, my absolute favorite album of the year, uh, on its merits, it's quite an achievement, and it has a sort of richness and attention to detail that I think is generally not matched even by other very strong and enjoyable albums, sort of attempting some of the same kind of ideas, so uh, I can do nothing but recommend this album, and it is... Mm probably my standout for the year so far so i uh i feel like this is one that i do need to give more attention to um i've only listened to it really a couple of times and 
I'll, I'll be frank, like, I don't think as, as intently as I should have. I definitely think Perfume Genius as, a, as an artist has some always been, you know, guy that I've kept on my radar, um, even though I've never really felt like any of his albums have, like, fully hit a home run for me. I always want to know what he's doing. And I definitely feel like over time he's gotten maybe a bit less, um, a bit less, I would guess I would say, I, I hesitate to use this word, but I can't think of anything else, like a bit less sort of campy um, and a bit more like emotionally direct on his records, which I have appreciated. And particularly, as you say, this record, and even just like down to the aesthetic of it and the cover and stuff like that, um, really is kind of interested in this interplay between fragility and strength and through the lens of like masculinity and like queer sexuality um, in a really interesting way. Um, so definitely, if you want to see that, like, explored very much both lyrically and sonically on record, um, I would uh, recommend this record. And it is, like, an album where, like, you are going to be surprised from song to song, like, what he does, both in terms of, like, song structure and just sonic layering and stuff like that. So definitely an album that will, like, keep you on your toes and surprise you um, and, you know, goes directions you don't necessarily expect it to. Um, I guess for me, if I had to pinpoint a reason why it doesn't appear on my list, I guess it maybe felt similarly to the Rita Sawayama record a little bit. It felt a little bit, um, I, not exhausting, but a little bit draining at certain points in terms of both the sort of sledgehammer, for lack of a better word, um, uh, you know, uh, sonic approach he uses at certain times, these like really um, condensed shifts in like pitch or tone or volume um, that he often uses to get things across. Um, but overall, um, a record I would I would still definitely recommend uh, checking out. Okay, so my number one, and again, you know, previously mentioned, um, is in fact Punisher uh, by Phoebe Bridgers. Um, yeah, so Phoebe Bridgers, um, you know, who I first, you know, learned about as one third of Boy Genius and uh, one half of Better Comedian Better Oblivion Community Center, um, her project with Connor Oberst, um, you know, is somebody that I, when she first came out with uh, her debut album, Stranger in the Alps, it, you know, I didn't listen to that album at the time, it wasn't on my radar, and, you know, I went back and listened to it subsequently, and it is a very strong piece of work, um, and the thing I really like about Phoebe Bridgers um, that I think really makes her unique is that she is willing to be kind of wordy, kind of discursive in her songwriting. Um, it feels almost, like, I would almost compare it to Lucinda Williams in a certain way in the sense of, like, it does feel like this almost conversational, or, or even, like, maybe it's not quite as extreme as, like, a Mark Kozalek, like, Sun Kill Moon sort of thing, but, like, there is this sort of, like, discursive quality to her songwriting where, you know, she's talking about, like, these conversations people are having or these, like, weird side details in a, in a scenario or, um, you know, what somebody was eating while they told her something. And, and I guess all that to say I like that she's willing to sort of both, uh, you know, definitely lyrically at, at first, even on Stranger in the Alps, which, you know, is a, to me, um, a pretty solid B-plus, like, indie folk record uh, with some interesting country sort of te textures to it. Um, whereas I think on Punisher, she's much more moving into a sort of like broad palette indie rock. So you have, you know, songs like the opener uh, DVD menu or a song like Kyoto, which are much more uh, within a rock sort of sensibility. But then you have a song like Chinese Satellites, which um, really is much more kind of languid and bassy. 
Um, and then you have like hints of psychedelia around the edges on some of these tracks. You have um, electronic elements. And I guess what I liked about it is that even though she uh, is using this much broader palette of sonic textures, she still retains at the core that kind of loose, discursive, uh, folk-based songwriting um, that uh, I really have appreciated from her so far. And yeah, I just think she manages a couple of autosonic uh, and uh, to a certain degree thematic uh, ground on the record. And she just feels much more uh, assured and much more... Um, she just feels much more assured as both a songwriter and a performer on this record as compared to... Um, certainly as compared to Stranger of the Alps, but I would even say to some of her contributions on like the Boy Genius EP or... Um, even though I do uh, love dearly that Better Community, Better Oblivion Community Center record, um, I do feel like you know compared to that, uh, compared to this album, um, her contributions on that maybe seem a little bit more. I don't want to say not well, not thought out, but like a bit, bit more sort of direct and scrappy. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing. Whereas this feels much more considered and much more layered from her. Yeah, I just um, was really, I, I was anticipating this album, I really uh, wanted it to be good, and it was the album I think that this year like most directly met my expectations, and uh, the album that I thought showed the greatest growth and the greatest strengths, um, and, and evolution of strengths from an artist who I already really, really liked. Um, so yeah, for all those reasons, my number one so far this year is Punisher, by Phoebe Bushers, although it is unfortunately saddled with a sort of incongruous um, and quite odd uh, title as a record, uh, but, you know, that's probably the uh, the worst thing about it. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I flagged this, like I said, this is solidly in that group of 10 or 11 albums that really stood out to me this year, uh, and maybe just based on kind of aesthetics and what really... Uh, ends up speaking to me the most at the end of the day it, it lines up that with that less than some of the albums that made my list or something like the against all logic record but uh i that's not to take anything away i think this is definitely like one of those sophomore albums that shows like an immense leap in ambition and in the variety and consistency of ideas and just the textures uh at play and uh i don't know there's something and i think maybe i i don't even know i i'm, I'm trying to think of a songwriter that i would necessarily compare i mean that's i think maybe why uh phoebe and uh connor oberst made such a good pair uh, even for, you know, a uh, kind of, even if, uh, you know, they might excel, it might not be either of their best projects. There's a commonality between them and the way that they, you know, manage to be very direct, but also poetic just through kind of, you know, left field ways of describing a situation or a feeling and uh making it you know much more memorable and uh, i think that's really on display here so i think uh probably it is in that way uh, uh sort of a twin with set my heart on fire if it's even if it's less thematically unified because i think they're both really 
in my estimation, saw uh, albums where, you know, some of the more most talented songwriters of uh, our generation are really coming into their own and uh, delivering projects that, you know, kind of really consistently surprise and impress you, uh, not just overall but individually in how they have different twists and turns and balance between you know moods and tempos and how that can really add uh to an album as just kind of a slab of sometimes i think of an album as a slab of vibes and on the Mm -hmm. singer-songwriter basis i think both albums really excel on that front yeah absolutely absolutely no it definitely has a it has a vibe to it, as the kids say. It has a vibe to it. Um, yeah, so I thank uh, you for listening, and I thank Isaac for being uh, with me here today to, to discuss all these records. Uh, like I say, I think overall it has been a pretty strong year for, for music so far. And I mean, again, maybe the, the thesis, which we have posited on the show many a time, uh, you're living in hell, but all your favorite bands are there. Um, perhaps truer in this year than any other. Uh, I, I don't know. Um, and I definitely think that there are um, some some strong albums that seem to be. I mean, it's interesting that you know, the 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 fact that we you know are in this increasingly digital um, environment as far as album releases like has kind of thrown the traditional release cycle almost out the window. So we definitely know that there are like certain artists that are working on music, um, but like increasingly it's kind of just like albums appear when they appear as opposed to having a much longer lead time. So, like, we know that, for instance, the Arcade Fire are working on something. Uh, there are, like, a few other things that have been announced, but, you know, I definitely think that we will see some more, um, you know, I, I'm not going to prejudge any records, but, you know, necessarily, but we're definitely going to see some more um, albums from artists that we have on our radar um, before the year is out, for sure. Oh, definitely. <clears throat> definitely. I think maybe the big question mark on the fall release calendar is, is Kendrick going to drop an album? Because we mm. know that he has one in the can, but I certainly wouldn't begrudge him at the end of the day sitting on an album, refining it, waiting for the right time to release. So, uh, you know, no aspersions being cast, but from my understanding and from all reports, he, he has an album that's in its its final stages of, of tweaking. Yeah, so I mean... As yeah, do, I mean, I, again, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was saying, as do, I think, the Avalanches, which is another one of the mm. the releases, which I, I feel pretty comfortable saying will come out this year, but who knows? Yeah, and, you know, who knows? Maybe, maybe it will take uh, the weight of a global pandemic, but perhaps masochism will finally come out in this most masochistic of years. Perhaps masochism well, will finally come out. I mean... I think, unfortunately, that the odds are looking better for Dear Tommy, and that's never a good position for you to be in as, an, as a fan waiting for an album to come out. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, anyway, but, but you know, nevertheless, Hope Springs Eternal, you know, maybe that would, you know, maybe, maybe if only for me, perhaps if Masochism comes out, 2020 will have been worth it. That's that's my hot take that I end, end this really, podcast with. Yeah, I mean, I would just, I would hope, uh, well, I would like to end on a plea that for anyone who's listening to this, we need your psychic energy to release Masochism and Dear Tommy, two albums which we've been waiting for longer than we've been doing this podcast. And 
it's we've true, been doing this podcast true, right? for uh, a number of years now. So mm-hmm. really, over five. It, oh, oh, this will be our fifth, our fifth year of yeah. inconsistently doing this podcast, but nevertheless, so. and we have, and we we have been waiting for for both you, Tommy, and Masochism for those five years. Although, of course, I mean. You know, Chromatics at the very least did D release <clears throat> albums. That's true. It's but, really, it's really not the same. Uh, Chromatics was yeah done everything, been, everything but release your Tommy. Whereas Skyfire has released a total of one original song in that in that intervening period, and one cover on on the Baby Driver soundtrack. Well, uh, so anyway, I'll I'll end with that plea and. Uh, okay, and, yes. and hope for hope for a brighter future, as always. Indeed. Indeed. All right, so uh, once again, if you want to email us, our email is thefirstcode at gmail.com or blog thefirstcode at blogspot.com where we will link to everything we talked about in the show today. I thank guys again for having me on the, uh, for being on the show with me and discussing these records. And wherever you are, uh, whatever you're doing, I hope you stay safe and I hope you have a good uh, rest of the year before we will uh, hopefully... We haven't all died of COVID by then. Uh, we will be back uh, with at the end of the year to discuss uh, more things uh, in the realm of music. And I thank you, and I wish you a pleasant week. Mm-hmm.